You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. We are in Acts chapter 20 today, uh, beginning at verse 13. There in Acts chapter 20. Before we get into it, let's just pray. Lord, as we come to this just incredibly encouraging and inspiring text, um, Lord, we just see that we are so weak and we just fail so much. I just I know that I don't measure up to a lot of the things that are here today. But Lord, we know that you you do measure up and you are powerful and you are able to just equip us and carry us and and be these things for us. And so we pray that you'd change us, Lord. We don't want to be like this world or the pattern of this world, but we want to be like you and the pattern that you've laid out for us in Jesus. Lord, we know that Paul imitated Jesus. And so we just want to imitate Paul. We want to imitate Christ. We want to just be, have all that you have for us and walk in all that you have for us. And so just encourage us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 20, verse 13. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos. There intending to take Paul on board, for so he'd given orders, intending himself to go on foot. So we're kind of following up uh, on the third missionary journey of Paul. Got a little map there on the screen. You'll see Asia is right in the middle there. Uh, but the top left, we see Paul heading back towards Jerusalem, but he hits the mainland of Asia there at Troas. Uh, you'll see that the little red line says the ship went around the little peninsula there, um, but Paul went, walked from uh, Troas uh, to Assos. And, you know, perhaps for a little stretching of the legs, a little bit of exercise, but uh, maybe even just to have that intimate time with the Lord of walking with the Lord. You know, we know Adam and Eve, they would have that fellowship with the Lord, walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. And I just know for me, one of my just most intimate times with the Lord is when I'm just walking. I'm in the midst of his creation. You know, I'm just able to just take in what he's done and it, and it all testifies to his splendor, his majesty and his power. And those are just great times for me. Plus it helps uh, with the whole Eutychus syndrome. You know, last week we, we studied Eutychus and how during the Bible study, he got a little bit sleepy and it says he was given over to sleep and he fell out of that third story window and died, you know, and uh, how often in our prayer lives, you know, we start out with good intentions. They're on the couch or they're laying down on our bed and just we're out, you know, or the distractions of the home, you know, they're there and they just distract us from a prayer life. But how good it is to just get out and you get your heart pumping, you get your mind working and a great time. So maybe that's what Paul was up to on that walk there, about 25 mile walk. But uh, verse uh, 14 says, when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there and the next day came opposite uh, Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos, stayed at Trogilium. I don't even know that one. <laughs> Trogilium. And the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. For Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the children, or excuse me, for the elders. I don't know where I got children. Called for the elders of the church. So Paul's just making his way back, trying to get back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, uh, a Jewish holiday, but for the Christians had taken on so much more meaning. It was the anniversary of the Holy Spirit falling upon believers. And so uh, Paul wanting to be back there in Jerusalem for that, uh, kind of in a rush, trying to skirt around Asia. We know at this point that um, the word of God had gone from Ephesus throughout all of Asia. E Ephesus had become just an incredible hub for missions activity and for the gospel as Paul had spent over three years there, three months of which was reasoning in the, in the synagogues with the Jews. And from there, two and a half years um, in the school of Tyrannus where he ministered daily in the middle of the day. 
there with the people. Uh, incredible revival happened there in Ephesus if we, as we've been studying the last couple of weeks. Everything from, you know, the, the 12 disciples that Paul ministered to in there in Ephesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, becoming bold witnesses, uh, to his head, you know, his handkerchiefs, sweatbands, and his aprons being sent out. And those that would touch those things would be healed of diseases and demon possession, um, to the sorcery and the witchcraft and the superstitious Things being brought to nothing there in Ephesus as uh, people came and burned their books of witchcraft, the value of which was something like $4 million in our modern day currency. Uh, so incredible revival. It affected the economy. It felt and affected politics there in Ephesus. And, um, and so as Paul's kind of running back from Macedonia, trying to get back to Jerusalem, hurting, you know, no doubt hurts his heart that he can't spend time with the Asian churches. He just doesn't have time, but he knows, man, got to spend time with the leadership, got to spend time with these elders. And so he sends for those um, elders to make that little journey there. You see on the map from Ephesus uh, there to Miletus <clears throat> in verse 18. And when they come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. This passage here in Acts chapter 20, where Paul exhorts and encourages these Ephesian elders, man, it is so inspiring to those of us that uh, are in ministry and are in leadership and are servants, whether you serve up front or whether you serve in obscurity, um, man, we are so encouraged uh, by the words of Paul in this chapter. And so we're just going to pull it apart slowly, um, not not even getting through the whole thing today, but we just see, first of all, in verse 18, that, that the people knew from the first day the manner that Paul lived among them. He had an, a life of an open book, you know, and it's often said that those that are in ministry live in glass houses, you know, uh, people see and they examine everything that you're doing. Uh, they're watching you. And, uh, you know, Paul just says, hey, watch away, watch away. I've got nothing to hide. I want to be an example, not perfect. You know, but learn from my imperfections, you know, uh, you know, follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But, you know, the way that I live among you, it's no secret. It's nothing hidden. And here's some of the examples of that. In verse 19, I serve the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Pulling this verse apart, we see that Paul was a servant of the Lord. That word servant speaks of a lowliness of attitude, a lowliness of mind and compliance and obedience to the master whom you're serving. We notice that he served the Lord, the one Lord. You know, so often that, that, that title is just passed around so flippantly in our world today. You know, and I've just been getting the opportunity to be with people lately that that, you know, as I'll ask him, man, would you say that Jesus is your Lord? Would you say that Jesus is your Savior? And, and you know, it's just flippantly people throughout, Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior. And, and I've just really been getting, the Lord's just put me in people's paths lately. I've been able to say, hey, do you know what that means? You're saying that Jesus is your Lord. You're saying that Jesus is your Savior. But do you know what that means? If he's your Lord, then it means that he's your master. It means that he owns you and he rules over you. And everything you do, you do for his good pleasure. Everything you do, you do in obedience to him. Would you say that he's your Lord? Really? And this is a question for me. Are you really my Lord? Is he really your savior? Has he saved you from your sins? Has he saved you from the result of your sin? Has He saved you from condemnation, from eternity in hell? Is He really your Savior? But Paul here, he served his Lord. No question that Jesus was his master. And he served that master with humility, with lowliness. Both on a vertical level, before the Lord there was humility. And, both, and horizontally, before men. You know, for you to be serving in humility before men, it means this, that you never feel that you have any rights, but rather that you owe all men. Is that the case for you and, and the people that you serve or the people you want to serve? Would you consider yourself a servant? 
means an abandonment of rights that you think are due to your name. And it speaks of an owing of men. A lowliness of mind about yourself. As Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambitions, which is a desire to see yourself succeed, or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, Paul says, let each esteem others as better than himself. Man, this is just a life verse for me. I'm not perfect in it, but I want, I want to be perfect in it. I want to be just so lowly in mind that I just don't think I'm better than anybody else. I want to think everybody else is better than me. You know, as, as Romans chapter 12 tells us that, you know, with brotherly kindness, we would give preference to one another. Just, I prefer you. I give preference to you. I hope you succeed. I hope you're better. I'm a servant of Jesus. I want to serve you. I want to esteem you as better than myself, as Paul told me to. There in Philippians chapter 2. As I serve the Lord with all humility, and I know who He is, man, I want to serve man with all humility, knowing who I am compared to God. Humility is a key ingredient in serving God. Wherever you want to serve the Lord at, in whatever capacity, may you be clothed with humility. You know, nothing will put you on the shelf in ministry faster than thinking you're something that you're not. Or thinking that you're worthy of something that you're not. Or wanting some kind of praise or accolade or some kind of a pat on the back. You know, in ministry, as Billy Graham put it, you know, you don't touch the gold, the glory, or the gals. You know, those are things, just don't touch it. You know, stay away. You'll be shelved so quickly in ministry. Paul walked in humility. And it was something that was seen in how he lived and heard in how he spoke. As one man said, humility is a true estimation of oneself in light of God's infinite value and worth. You know, when we have just the correct understanding, a correct theology of who God is, how worthy He is, how perfect He is, how holy He is, how right He is, how sovereign He is, and then you look at yourself, (laughs) it should be like, okay, you know, I'm nothing compared to the Lord. If I have any value at all, it's value that the Lord would give me. And so, because Paul was humble in his service, there was nothing that he would not do for Jesus. There was no task too small or too menial, too obscure for the Lord. Man, I remember just serving in in Corvallis and, you know, cleaning the bathroom and cleaning the trash cans and cleaning the toilets. And and I was in there with my buddy and as we're cleaning just some, some pretty gross toilets after an event we had there, my friend goes, Lord, he's praying in the other stall and I hear him praying. He says, Lord... May I never be too proud to clean these dirty toilets. You know, and as we're building the church, you know, I I got to have the privilege of putting in this huge septic system in uh, the church there in Corvallis. And as we're putting the septic system in, we'd have issues and have to, you know, kind of get in there and work on it. And then it it all drained to this giant gravelly pool thing that, you know, and we'd have to blow off the leaves off of the top of this big gravel septic thing. And I'd be out there with the leaf blower. And before you know it, these septic sprinklers would turn on and got to get off of this thing, but you got to finish blowing the leaves off. And Lord, may I never be too prideful to be the guy that blows the leaves off of the septic thing and gets it all over me. May we have that humility before Lord and our brothers that we're just like, Lord, I'll do anything for you. My brothers and sisters, they're just, they're so worth serving. And Lord, you are so worth serving. Paul was a genuine servant because he had genuine humility. One of my mentors taught me back in the school of ministry, you know, you can always tell who the real servants are by the way they react when they're treated like one. You know, we all like to say, oh, I'm a, I'm a minister, which means I'm a servant. <laughs> you know, I'm a servant here at the church. And, and then someone treats you like one. And you'll know that day will come when someone will talk to you like you're a servant. Get me this or do this or go do that. 
And immediately it starts to, your pride starts to fester within you and, whoa, don't you ask me to do things. I am, well, I'm a servant, but, okay, I would have done it, but it was the way you asked me, you know? It's like, hey, are you a, are you a servant, a slave of the Most High? Or do, you know, or do you want to rule? I mean, let's be honest here. Man, if we're a servant, then we allow people to treat us like servants. We forsake all pride. Paul served the Lord with humility in the midst of opposition and suffering. And so often when we're in difficult and hard-pressing situations, people usually stop to think about their selves and focus their full attention on their self and our wants and our wishes when we're in these hard times. But Paul, man, he would go through hard times and the genuineness of his humble service would just be lit up and glowing Because even in the hard times, he wasn't about himself. He was about the Father's business. He was about serving others. And you see there that that genuine, humble service there in verse 19 was with many tears. And next week when we get to verse 31, we're going to see even more and talk more about those tears that Paul shed. But that serving was with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you. Paul's humble service was, was a helpful service. He kept back nothing that was helpful. He proclaimed it, verse 20 says, both publicly, you know, out and about the school of Tyrannus or in the synagogue or open air preaching perhaps. But also in those private settings when he would teach house to house in a home with the family for dinner. And then the kids go to bed and then you just continue talking about the grace of God and the power of God and the majesty of God and the gospel. In fact, we see the message that he would preach there. As he says, I taught you publicly from house to house. Verse 21, testifying to Jews and to Greeks The message, repentance toward God and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. The message he would preach was one of repentance, just like that of John the Baptist. He'd say, hey, repent, stop doing what you're doing. You know, that word repent means to turn and go the opposite direction. So whatever direction those Ephesians were going... Worshipping Diana of the Ephesians or being involved in superstitious activity or, you know, whatever it might have been. Turn from those things, from that idolatry, from that wicked mindset and turning in the opposite direction and worshipping Jesus. As it says, they're turning toward God, turning toward faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever we repent of something, we need to turn to something. You know, when we flee sexual immorality, as 2 Timothy tells us, but then we're to pursue righteousness. You flee something or you turn from something, you've got to go after something else. Man, make sure that something else that you turn towards is is God. Not just a God or an idea about God, but man, the God of the Bible. The God who's revealed himself to us in the Bible. You know, if someone says they follow after God and yet, you know, the God that they appear to be serving and worshiping is found nowhere in this baby, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong. In fact, Paul goes on to say just a little bit more faith towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that master Jesus Christ. And so there's this repentance that Paul preached there. Have you repented today? Have you repented of your old way of living, your old lifestyle, those old things that used to own you, those things you used to worship, those things you used to pursue that were not Jesus, that were contrary to Jesus? Have you repented of those things? Have you turned toward faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 22 says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, 
so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Man, verses 22 through 24 are so encouraging to me. And man, 24 is kind of like the home run statement of it all. But in these three verses, there's just a theme that, that you see in Paul's speech here. And that is faithfulness to the call is better than life or a comfortable life. Faithfulness to the call of God upon your life is better than living or living comfortably. And you know what? This is totally un-American. You know, the American dream is to, you know, be successful, get yourself comfortable, get your family comfortable, you know, and get yourself to some point that you can just kind of retire and live luxuriously and without any cares in the world and kind of finish out your life in like this little, you know, crescendo, you know, let that be the way that it, that it, uh, tapers off there or decrescendo. It's been a while since I've been in band class, but crescendo is big opposite decrescendo. Sorry. Band days coming back to me, but we see here, he had this faithfulness to the call and he knew that he was bound in the spirit in verse 22, I, now see, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. You know, the spirit was leading him to Rome, eventually towards Spain, where chains and tribulations would await him, and eventually back to Rome. And you could say that Paul was bound to the will of God by the spirit of God. Is that a description of you? Is that a description of me? Man, I want the will of God to happen so bad. I want the will of God to happen so bad. I am bound to it by the Spirit of God. The Spirit has wrapped me around the will of God. Even though, Paul says, I don't know the things that await me there. You know, you know, you know faithfulness to the call is better than life or living comfortably when you can live without thorough knowledge of what tomorrow holds. You know, we always feel like we have to know what the weather's going to be tomorrow. We have to know what the schedule holds for tomorrow. We have to prepare ourselves so that we can function tomorrow. And yet for the Christian, you know, it's possible for us to live without that thorough knowledge of what's going to happen. A Christian can say, it doesn't matter what happens. I'm still going to be faithful to the call of God upon my life. Think about those days in your life that just completely, as, as many of the women that went to the Priscilla, Priscilla Shear thing, you know, wasn't her theme like life interrupted or something, you know? And, and imagine that day, think of it in your life when your life was interrupted. The death of a loved one or that call about cancer. You know, or the, the wife or the husband coming in and saying, I don't love you anymore. It's over, you know, or man, there's, there's people today that they're arrested as their home group is attacked by soldiers, their Bible reading home group attacked by soldiers and they're driven off to prison and their home is burned life interrupted. But for a Christian, they're able to say, you know what? There are going to be trials. There are going to be really really hard things. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you know what? I'm still going to be faithful to the call because God is still on the throne. Jesus is still alive today. He's still working all things together for his glory. He's still sovereign over these circumstances. And like Paul said, you know what? I don't know what awaits me over that hill. I don't know what's going to happen except, verse 23, except I kind of do know, is what he says. Except I kind of do know. He says, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now, Paul knew that in every city, scourgings, beatings, imprisonments, that confrontation that we all hate, as we're out in the city square telling people about Jesus. And you know, it hasn't happened to me in America, but in the other countries when we're out there preaching the gospel and you see the guys with the badges come up. 
Or you see the Hungarian police and their camouflage stuff come up in their little crazy cars, you know, and you're like, this is weird. Are we doing, you know, are we going to get in trouble for this? There's that initial panic that takes place and nothing ever happened to us. But Paul, he knew, hey, when the police roll up and they come into that city square, odds are I'm going to be arrested. Odds are I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be imprisoned. My friends could die here. The Holy Spirit has testified of this in every city. And that phrase, every city, man, doesn't it just clobber you? Every city. There wasn't one little vacation town that Paul got to go to on his journey. Like, ah, this is that. Kick your sandals off, Paul, and put your feet up. And we'll bring you a nice lemony drink with ice, you know. Nothing. The Holy Spirit said every city there's going to be trials and tribulation. You know, back when... Paul first got saved back when he was known as Saul in Acts chapter 9 verse 15. The Lord tells Ananias to go to that street called Straight because that guy Saul is there. And and Ananias was to go minister to him. And Ananias, Ananias was like, what? This guy's been killing Christians, Lord. There's no way I could go there and minister to this guy. And Jesus tells Saul or tells Ananias, Go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. What if you had that prophetic vision of all the things you were going to suffer for Jesus' name's sake, and it was no small number? Okay, every single city I go to, I'm going to get beaten and clobbered. You know, for Paul, it didn't matter. You know, we as Americans, we believe that things should be as easy as possible. But Paul teaches us that we shouldn't forsake Christ when we know that tomorrow holds trouble. When we know, when we wake up tomorrow, it's going to be the beginning of some major tribulation. But Paul leads us in that example. Hey, don't forsake Christ, even if you know what's going to happen tomorrow. Whether you know or whether you don't know, it doesn't matter. Just be faithful to the call of God upon your life. Just be a bearer of the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just be someone who fulfills the great commission and just goes and makes disciples. I know that the Holy Spirit's told me in every city, chains and tribulations await me. In verse 24, you can hear the sound of the crack of the ball against the bat. For this home run verse, man, none of these things move me. And we're just going to pull it apart slowly. We're going to pull this beautiful verse apart slowly like string cheese and just eat it a little bit. You know, if you eat the whole thing at once, it's like this rubbery. No, we're going to pull this verse apart. That Paul would say, man, I know every city I'm going to go through chains, tribulations. It's not going to be good. But none of these things move me. Paul wasn't concerned or fearful about the trials or the death that was certainly going to come his way. Fear didn't move Paul. This persecution that was prophetic over his life, it really was nothing, as Romans 8 tells us, compared to the eternal weight of glory that we're going to get in heaven for suffering for Jesus, but that we're going to just turn and say, no, Lord, all glory goes to you anyways. The sufferings of this present time, Romans 8 tells us, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. And Paul wasn't removed, wasn't moved by the sufferings of this present time. And yet we so often are. We so often are movable. And we balk at fear so that we can't move. You know, oh no, I can't, I can't do it. I know something bad's going to happen. Man, put your trust in Jesus, rely upon the power of the Spirit to help you be a witness, to be a martyro, is that Greek word witness is, to be a martyr for Jesus. None of us can do it in our own strength. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. But Paul knew who he belonged to. He belonged to Jesus. He knew that this body was a temple of the Holy Spirit, as he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, and that the Holy Spirit was in him. And he knew, he wrote it, I am not my own, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify your body and your spirit, 
or glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul knew, hey, every city I go to, trials and tribulations await me. But you know what? I'm not my own. This is, this is Jesus's. And Jesus is saying, go. He bought me with his blood. He's committed the, the ministry of an ambassador to me, as he has with all of you. And let's go. Let's go be faithful to the Lord. Because Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul did that. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You try to save your life, you're going to lose it. Paul shows us, man, just let it go. Lose your life for his sake. Paul lived a life of total abandon to God here. None of these threats of chains and tribulations moved him. Nor do I count my life dear to myself. Verse 24 goes on to say, I don't count my life dear to myself. Think of those things in your life today that you hold so dear. You know, obviously family, the wife and the kids and, you know, the sisters, the brothers, the moms, the dad. That's kind of like the, the main, like, Thing that you just don't touch, <laughs> you know, don't touch my family, God, you know, and man certainly better not touch my family. And then it goes kind of trickles from their extended family possessions, that home that you've been paying off for 30 years, you know, that car you finally just were able to get and enjoy those possessions, that career that you worked so hard for. You count it dear. Do you hold on to it with just such a close grip that God is not able to use you because you're so intent on keeping it and enjoying it? Or do you have a, a biblical mindset of these things where they were given to you by the Lord and they can be taken by the Lord? Where Paul would say, verse uh, Philippians 3, 7, all of these things that were gained to me, my status the things that I've earned and the things that I've worked for, I've counted them all loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Do we hold so tightly to these things that were of no earthly good? <laughs> Man, do we have an open hand to say, Lord, they're yours. These things are yours. I don't count my life dear to myself. This breath, this heartbeat is yours. So let every breath and every heartbeat be used for your glory. It all flies in the face of the American dream, like I said before. And so we as Christians need to set our face like flint against this American dream of just success and being comfortable and eventually just setting ourselves up for security and for, you know, our children and our family to have security. You know, one of the main things is retirement in this world. You know, I kind of have that little bit in me that, the flesh wouldn't mind retiring someday, you know, probably not going to happen. But listen to these um, Webster's Dictionary definitions of retirement, okay? Number one, to withdraw from action or danger or to retreat or to withdraw, especially for privacy, to move back or to recede. To withdraw from one's position or occupation. And I'm not talking about retirement from your business as being a bad thing. But when that retirement from your business means you retire from all things kingdom-minded, there's a danger there. You know, for most, retirement means convenience and recovery and taking it easy and luxuri luxuriously. And some of us, we don't even, it's not even so much on us, but we're told ages 62 to 65, you get the letter, you get the, the confrontation from your foreman or from your boss saying, hey, you're done here, old man, old lady. <laughs> you're done here. It's time for you to just kind of go out to pasture and just taper off your life. You know, it's time for you to withdraw from the action or to withdraw from the danger or to recede in your life. But man, I encourage you when you get that letter or it's time for you to retire from the business world 
that you could just say, hey, you know what? This is just a change of my post in the war effort. I'm not done here. Ages 62 through 65, you're, you're told, hey, it's time to just go and live luxuriously. And so often for people, those last 20 years of life are just wasted. And I know this is, it's probably easy for me to say, because I'm kind of on this end of things. But man, let me just encourage you. Let's just look at the life of Paul who says, you know what? I don't count my life dear to myself. I'm not looking for luxury. I'm looking to finish my race, as he says here in verse 24, to finish my race with joy and the ministry I received from the Lord. You know, Paul didn't want to just be put out to pasture. He wanted to run the race to win and to go through that finish line in victory. And so if you're going to be faithful to this call in your life, it means finishing the race, or if you have the RSV version, the course, the race course, and getting the crown, winning the crown. I love that Paul so often uses, you know, athletic pictures to drive home his point. You know, it seems that he liked to talk about running and he liked to talk about fighting and boxing. And he, you know, uses those as pictures of the Christian race, the Christian walk. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. First Corinthians nine twenty four says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? How many receive a prize? One. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. The, the race that we're running has in that eternal weight of glory in the heavens. It's not the Stephanos crown here on the earth that it was made out of a little leaf and in a week it's crusty and falling apart, hanging on a, on a thumbtack in your bedroom. You know, We're talking about a major prize here that we're running for. Verse 26, therefore I run this way, or thus, not with uncertainty, and thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I've preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. You know, Paul was running this race to win it, not just to compete in it. And Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 just gives us some more insight on how this race that Paul was running should be run. So everyone flip over there. Hebrews 12, 1. Possibly Paul was writing this. Possibly Apollos. No one really knows. But it says this, Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, just picture this race. You've got an audience cheering you on. Those guys that have gone before us. The guys mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance that race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, he's the prize, he's the finish line, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we're told here in Hebrews that, man, running the race to win, running the race with endurance, but also running this race without encumbrances. You know, we've all seen the people that train for the, you know, the race with their little leg weights on, you know, those little leg weights that strap around your, you know, you kind of do your little workout and all that. But when race day comes, man, it's foolishness to run with those training weights on. You've got to lay those things aside so that we can run speedily. You can also see there in Hebrews 12, verse 1, that not every weight is a sin. We're to lay aside the weight that is causing us to run slowly and the sin that so easily ensnares us. So look into your life and ask the Lord to look in your life and say, Lord, is there anything in my life that maybe isn't sin, but it's something that's keeping me back from all out pursuing you? Show me what it is, Lord. I want to get rid of it. I want to run the race with endurance. First, uh, second Timothy chapter two tells us that if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. 
And Paul wrote that in his really final letter, his, his final message to Timothy. He said, hey man, we're in a race, you know, we're in athletics. There's rules, there are standards that we must follow. And just like in that first Corinthians passage, he says, man, I need to discipline my body. I need to compete according to the rules, lest I, the preacher, become disqualified. But the cool thing is, Paul did finish his race with joy. He finished his race with joy. And we see that in 2 Timothy 4, 7, the final, final letter of Paul. I call it the final pulse of Paul as he kind of says these farewells. And man, here's, here's him looking back. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. You know, this is a couple years after this time with the Ephesian elders here where he says, man, I want to finish strong. I want to finish my race with joy. So cool to see at the end. I've fought well and I have finished my race with joy. And I finished that ministry in, in, in chapter 20, verse 24. And the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What is this gospel of the grace of God? You can kind of see it laid out for us in the Romans road to salvation. Kind of a handy tool to just keep on you when you're sharing with people. If you'll flip over to Romans, you just mark this kind of road markers in your Bible where in Romans 3.23, we just see the gospel revealing grace. Because the gospel is grace. And in Romans 3.23, you just put a little number one road marker on the Romans road. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in chapter 6, verse 23... The wages of that sin is death. So on the, in the gospel, you know, as you're laying it out, it's kind of like when you go into a jewelry store and there's all those diamonds laid out, all those bracelets, but behind them they have some kind of a black backdrop or something dark that just causes those gems to shine all the more. So does the gospel. It has that black background. Where we share with people, hey, you're a sinner. We confront them with the fact that, you know, that they've sinned. They've fallen short of the glory of God. And the wage of that is condemnation. It's death, eternal life in hell. You have to be real with people. You don't skirt around the issue that they are sinners. You lay that black backdrop, but you don't just leave it there. You gotta bring out the gem, the good news as well. And the good news is found in the second half of verse 23. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Black backdrop, you're a sinner. The wage of that sin is death. But hold on. You know, you see it shine, you see it glimmer. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then road marker number four, Romans 5 verse 8. And God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the beautiful gem, we were at war with God. We were at enmity with God. There was nothing good in us. No, not one thing. And yet, this gracious, loving God demonstrates how much He loved His enemy by sending His own Son, that Son dying on the cross. Road marker number 5 is in Romans 10, verses 9 through 11 and verse 13. Romans 10, 9. Our response to the grace of God, our response to this loving God would be that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him 
will not be put to shame. And then verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. As you look at this Romans road, what is it that we have done for salvation? Nothing. It was all Jesus. It was all God. We were at war with him. We were sinners at enmity with him, but Christ died for us. And as we see this message of love and of grace and of mercy and compassion, man, our response should be, man, I believe. Not a work, but faith. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, it's by a gift, it's by free grace that you are saved. Through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The gospel, salvation, is a free gift of grace. We haven't earned it in any manner. As Romans tells us, if we'd earned it, then it would be debt. And God would just be paying off a debt towards us. I like how what Stuart was praying at the end of worship today. I thought it was just put very well that, you know, man, if it was of works and we could work our way to salvation, we know the Bible tells us that we're not good enough to work our way to salvation. We've all sinned and fallen short. And so if we're going to do those works, those works would be finished up by we ourselves dying on the cross, being condemned because that's our best work brings condemnation. Rather, Jesus took the cross for us and he paid the debt that he didn't owe. We owed it. That if we would believe on him and call on the name of the Lord, putting our rest and our trust in him, we would be saved. Paul finished his race with joy and that was his heart in Acts chapters 20 and he wanted to finish that ministry of the Lord Jesus that was committed to him to testify of that gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, and indeed, we're back in Acts chapter 20, if you don't know. And indeed, now I know that you all among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Definitely a sad time, you know. Just makes you want to cry thinking about it. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of of all men. I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. A couple weeks ago in chapter 18, we saw Paul in Corinth, and as he preached in the synagogue, the people, the Jews, rejected the gospel and began to mock him and speak evil of the way. And so he dusted off his garments and said, Your blood be upon your own heads. Now I go to the Gentiles. We went back in Ezekiel and we looked in chapter 3. You can also look at chapter 33 of Ezekiel, verses 1 through 9. Because two different times in Ezekiel, the Lord calls Ezekiel to be a watchman. And just as a watchman would stand on the, the gate of the city in the tower and look around for the invading enemy, if an invading enemy would come and the watchman saw it, but he didn't warn the town and he didn't warn the people, and that an enemy got into the town and began to slaughter people, then those people's blood were on that watchman's head. But if the watchman sees the invading people coming, rings the bell, lights the bonfire, tells everybody to get ready, the invading army comes, captures the city, kills people, you know what? That guy's innocent of the blood. He warned the people there was nothing he could do. And Paul here knew that he had that same ministry, that ministry of the watchman, warning people of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. You know, I bet every person that came across Paul had heard the gospel, knew what he was about, knew what he was laboring for. And as I was studying, I was asking myself, Rory, are you innocent of the blood of all men? And kind of got thinking, well, you know, pretty much since high school, pretty much everybody know, knows I'm a Christian and, and I try to preach the gospel to, to, you know, almost everybody. But then I just be able to hear the Lord say, okay, you know, and I was thinking about in Prineville. Okay, there's who are the non-believers I've been around in Prineville? And, you know, the Oasis hears every day the, the gospel every time I'm down there. Okay, well, who else, you know? Oh man, what about Dean at the Shell Station? Thinking about Dean at the Shell Station. And 
well, I had a really good conversation with them last time I was there and, and kind of was brought up this time. I was a pastor and got to kind of share what the Lord was doing at the church. And okay, so I'm, like, I'm innocent of Dean's blood. Well, Rory, did you tell him about Jesus? Did you tell him about his sin? Did you tell him there's, there's redemption for that sin? Did you tell him there's hope in Christ? And, and did you, no, I just kind of let him know I'm kind of a good person, <laughs> you know, or I have a job that's like, oh, you must be good, you know. Oh, that's so lame, God. <laughs> that's so lame. Because if today was the end of his life and all he heard was, well, yeah, this is what I do. That's helped him nothing. And so, man, may, I'm not perfect. I'm just sharing. Man, may the relationships that we have not be about morality, but may we tell people the truth in love that they're sinners and they're in desperate need of a savior. And Jesus is that savior that we could all say on that day, you know what? I'm guilty of the blood of all men. The people that God brought up across my path, I told them about Jesus. I haven't shunned to declare to them the whole counsel of the word of God in verse 27. You know, I personally believe that's, man, that's going verse by verse through the scriptures as every Jot and tittle will come to pass, as Jesus says. Then, man, we're going to go through every period and punctuation mark and sentence. And we're and once we go through once, we, I haven't gone through it all. We're going to do it again and again so that you can be fed, so that you can know the whole counsel of the Word of God. And Paul was faithful to do that. Innocence of the blood of all men. We're going to close there because there's so much more we don't have nearly enough time to go through as we finish this chapter. This is just part one of this encouraging, inspiring exhortation from Paul. Go ahead and have the worship team come on up. And you can just set your Bibles aside and we'll just enter into a time of just responding and prayer before the Lord. And just as you just have your eyes closed, your head bowed, we just want to come back to the gospel, the grace of God, and just ask you to examine your life, your heart. Have you rested in Christ? Have you placed your trust in Christ? That it's through His grace, His free gift, His demonstration of love towards you on the cross, that you're saved. If you've been trusting in yourself or your works or your upbringing, then the result will be condemnation. But rest upon Jesus in His perfection today. Place your trust in Him and His sacrifice. His perfect blood was spilt on the cross so that yours wouldn't have to be. And if you would believe on Him today, you'll be saved. You won't be put to shame. Right now where you're at in your heart, just confess your sin before Him. Lord, I acknowledge my sin. These times of immorality, these times of worshiping things in this world and people in this world and Lord, times of hatred and bitterness and backbiting. Lord, I know it's there in my life. Lord, I know there's been times where I've sensed you saying, don't do this, but Lord, I've done it. I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. But Lord, today I Ask for forgiveness of those things. And I rest in the atonement that you've provided for me through the cross. And I receive today the newness of life that you won for me when you rose from the dead. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com.
We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you. 